Are you drinking anything? Uh, I made a gin and tonic. I did too. In honor of the song. One of the better songs in this show. I was like, everyone knows that like my drink is a gin and tonic. So like if I don't have a gin and tonic to the song <laughs> gin and tonic, that would just be wrong. Welcome to Bottomless Broadway, where we talk musicals over mimosas, except we're both having gin and tonics in <laughs> honor of the show we're talking about today, which is K-pop the musical. Yeah. So do you have five words to describe K-pop? I have five words. They're kind of basic, but I feel like it's like a good in to the topic. So my five words were not the expose I wanted. Okay. Um, what about yours? Mine was going through an identity crisis, speaking to the show itself and its transfer from off-Broadway to Broadway. Okay. So like we're talking about the same thing. Yeah. In that case, maybe I'll just give a quick summary and then we'll kind of summarize the off-Broadway version and we mm -hmm. can like jump into that topic first. Yeah, sounds good. Cool. So K-pop the musical, where do I start? <laughs> Ruby, who heads, I guess, the self-named Korean entertainment agency, RBY, is gearing up for the American debut of like all of the entertainers at her agency which include fate spelled f8 which is like a boy band with i guess eight people hopefully <laughs> um artemis which is a smaller more reasonable sized girl group and Mui, who is this headliner soloist played by luna from fx they've hired this american director named harry to direct like the film or concert that they're putting on for the american audience and it kind of starts with like them rehearsing this and harry filming the process and directing the opening numbers go you know solid and then we has like her first number and then she kind of like freaks out in the middle of it and runs off stage so harry instructs his cameraman to go follow her off stage and like get secret footage of the drama and from that we're kind of able to get glimpses into Mui's backstory and how she began training with the agency when she was like nine years old after her father abandoned her. The show, it's interspersed with several more flashbacks to Mui's childhood pretty much spent entirely at the agency and how she's got to where she is today as the headliner of the company. And then while this is going on backstage, Harry's like still directing the other bands on the actual stage of the theater. And they're still like going through their rehearsal. So fate runs into some issues because their newest band member, whose name is Brad, was hired to replace another member. And I don't know if they told us what happened to that guy. <laughs> um, and Brad is like a somewhat whitewashed Korean American who like actually believes in individuality and agrees with Harry, the white guy, that their in sync intros or whatever are like 
boring and the rest of his group is like, no, Brad, you suck. This is how we introduce ourselves. <laughs> Shit happens there. And Artemis is honestly just the least dramatic, super chill girl group rehearsing like normal people. The only thing they really do is Harry keeps on trying to like fish tea out of them. And they're like, we don't have any tea to tell you because Ruby will kill us. My favorite part was when we walked out of the show and you're like, wow, the girl group was so non-toxic. Their main conflict was just that some of them were more tired than others, which is true. <laughs> they were they would just like sit down on the stage like start rubbing their feet and one person would be like let's practice more and another person would be like no i really don't want to and i'm like this is such a healthy conversation compared to everyone else <laughs> i do think so i saw this twice um i do think they changed it up a little because everyone said oh the girl group basically does nothing and they still kind of do nothing compared to like both mui and fate but they did make it like mm -hmm. slightly higher stakes. When Mui was like threatening not to perform, they like kind of turned on her a little to be like, oh, well, like she's ruining it for all of us. They staked their entire lives on this concert. And they also fought with Harry a little more because Harry was like, I want to just film some like, you know, backstage B-roll, some casual thing. And they were like, no, that's not how K-pop works. We have to be perfectly directed. And, you know, it's a, it's an image thing. There is no backstage casual thing. Like we're not looking for authenticity. Yeah, pretty much. And I guess this sort of transitions to like the off-Broadway show, which I didn't see. So this is mostly just cobbled together from like reviews and people talking online about it. But like Artemis seemed like it had like a more interesting plot there where Sonoma, who is known as throw up girl in this show, she was sort of <laughs> being groomed to be Mui's replacement. And Mui's story was more about, I mean, it's similar where she felt like she was a little bit shackled by Ruby and she wanted to sing her own songs. And Ruby was like, you're 26, you're kind of getting old. And so she kind of brought in Sonoma to be like, hey, this can be like your little sister, but it was definitely meant to be like a she's going to be your replacement sort of thing. So then there was more direct conflict between Mui and Artemis, I guess, because Sonoma was kind of from Artemis. And I guess Artemis is all just trained as little mini replacements for Mui. Also, Artemis at the time was called Special K. I don't know why. I think Artemis is cooler because it Artemis took me till the cooler. second time to figure out because spelled R-T-M-I-S. But those are the first initials of all their names. And I was like, wow. Special K is a serial. I don't yeah. know where they were going with that. So I was excited for this show to come to Broadway because of what you had told me and what I had read mm -hmm. about the off-Broadway production, which seemed like an expose. I'll like explain in general what it is about. First of all, it was immersive, right? Like the audience mm -hmm. was roaming around. And as the audience, we were apparently casted as like American producers, people that they were trying to impress so that we would want to help promote them in America. It was supposed to kind of start out as this like, this is the office building where they train, look at all the great facilities. But then slowly there's like more and more fucked up shit, like a really intense dance trainer, choreographer person, this in-house plastic surgeon that would just like daily tell all of the performers like what was wrong with their face and their body. Things like that. And it was more how intense and cutthroat the k-pop industry and like the training process is and i feel like when i look at the plot of the broadway musical at like face value it does still show a lot of that not so much in the sense of like someone from artemis replacing Mui, i guess but it's 
still just like you said, like they don't want the backstage footage. Mm-hmm. We still see how much we struggled from nine years old to get to where she is. A lot of that information is still there, but I think maybe the person playing Harry or the way that Harry was written into this script since like originally he was basically the audience in the immersive version Mm -hmm. was just not that well done because he seems like this really super white sleazy like self-serving Hollywood guy kind of and his whole thing is just like I want to get this b-roll because it's gonna like catapult me to fame because this is such juicy shit and I feel like maybe if he were slightly less self-serving and more genuinely interested in what's going on and are these artists getting abused having more of like a curious character trait it could have worked better and served as less of a scathing expose as the off-broadway one but still made some kind of statement but like the way that his character is right now just kind of makes it seem like the american guy is the villain and the k-pop industry is just doing its thing yeah i definitely agree i think it could have been done a lot better if it was more about like the culture clash between american culture and like k-pop and the standards that they have you know like if he was just like a like a nicer guy or something and he was watching these rehearsals being like hey, don't they need a break? It seems like they're really tired or like, you know, something like that even. Like, oh, I'm genuinely curious. Why can't you talk to me? (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, there is a little bit about that when Fate is doing their sort of like traditional Korean greeting. Harry is like, oh, hey, could we like change it up a bit? Maybe make it more personable. And Brad sort of latches onto that because Brad is also like fairly American. Um, So he's grown up with those values. And just seeing that conflict, if it like, got to be more of an actual either conversation between them or Harry actually trying to understand the culture that they're representing, I think would have been more interesting for the story and also maybe even more interesting for the audience who isn't used to seeing Korean culture or K-pop or anything like that, because it would also be a stand-in for them to understand those values. Do you have any idea why it changed so much? Was there like lobbying going on where they like didn't want the show to paint it so poorly? Or is that the only way that like they could get actual K-pop celebrities? I, to do I do it? wonder about that. I know one of the big things that they mentioned having changed is because the off-Broadway wor- version was about how can we adapt ourselves to fit an American audience and that's why, you know, you as the audience member are sort of like a focus group for them to see how Americans would react to stuff. But then mm-hmm. by the time that it moved to Broadway, they were like, but K-pop did cross over already. Because there was a lot of talk in the original mm-hmm. one about how are we going to cross over? What do we need to change? What are we trying to hold on to to keep it K-pop? And they were like, oh, between BTS and Blackpink and stuff, like K-pop technically did cross over. So they felt like that storyline was a little obsolete. It was funny because there was that one interview with the creators where they're like, oh, we're not trying to make an expose of the industry. And if you just look at stuff about the off-Broadway show, it feels like they were. I do wonder if it was because they were on a bigger stage. They felt like they had to be more careful about what they said. Right. Yeah. And it almost feels like this version isn't really meant for the Broadway audience, which is fine. 80% of the songs are in Korean and by getting all of these actual Korean K-pop stars and everything, it felt like the show was now like very marketed towards K-pop fans instead of using the medium of musical theater to Mm -hmm. do an expose and tell this kind of unknown story. 
Right. And I think that's like also where it comes back to my five words about it going through an identity crisis is it felt like it was very unfocused in what it wanted to tell. With the original one, I think it helped that you were sort of put in the shoes of an American audience that they're testing it out on because if you are like, you know, a white American audience and you have had no experience with K-pop before, that is sort of the exact role you're playing in the immersive version. And here you're kind of just sitting there like watching the series of events play out and none of the actual storylines are that interesting because they're all very cliche. We wants more say over her life and her art because Ruby has been grooming her essentially since she was nine. And also she has a boyfriend who she's like maybe trying to run away with, but then he also doesn't understand her either. And then Brad doesn't get along with his group because they're coming from different cultures. And Harry also just comes and makes everything worse because he also is like a dumb American who doesn't try to understand them and is just in it for his own gain. Like these are all very cliche storylines that we've seen in some shape or form before. So without having that like extra layer of, oh, you're this new American audience that we're auditioning for, essentially, then it's kind of like, why are we watching this outside of the musical numbers? It really becomes more about the music and like having a concert experience rather than watching a story. Yeah. When you were like, I still don't care about Brad. I don't know if anyone cares about Brad. (laughs) I just feel like they've misunderstood what people like about k-pop we all agree with kevin because people who like k-pop know that those super synchronized introductions are part of how it is that's what people like about k-pop you know like we loved like how synchronized the dancing is and everything if we were looking for individuality we would go deal with kanye but like we're not (laughs) yeah So if I had to guess why the drastic change, it might still have to do with K-pop being bigger in the U.S. now, but in a different sense. Maybe when K-pop was extremely niche and like more contained in Asia, the Korean Americans that were responsible for the show could kind of look at it with a more critical lens. But then now that it's very, very much international and like fairly popular in the U.S., maybe they feel like as Korean Americans that they shouldn't take it down and make it Mm. less popular with the international audience by talking shit about it. Let's go through the show. I don't know if we'll have a ton to say about every number because so much of the songs are in Korean, but we can still kind of go through the plot in detail and call out some favorite songs and least favorite outfits Yeah, as, as we go through. <laughs> the first song opening number is This Is My Korea. And we're introduced to both Fate and Artemis here. I didn't love it at first because, you know, going into the show, I feel like I had really high expectations for it based on the off-Broadway reviews. And this as an opening song was rough for me. But 
after listening to it for a while, I'm like, yeah, you know what? I could get down with this. You mentioned you hate the way that the, is it the scansion of this is my Korea? Because it's like, this is my Korea. Yeah. To be fair, it is very accurate and in line with actual K-pop songs. <laughs> so maybe it was on purpose. If you liked a lot of the songs, I feel like you would like K-pop. I think it represents K-pop songs pretty well from the catchy tunes, the EDM, and the bad English lyrics and the bad English <laughs> word scansions, and the chokehold that some of the bad songs have on you after you listen to it a few times. <laughs> it's just very in line with, with K-pop. It was a bit of a weak opener for the show. Yeah. There's just so many hot people dancing their legs off that <laughs> I don't even know if like the song is important. So it's fine. Another thing to add overall is that this sort of does the same thing that the songs in Some Like It Hot do where it is meant to be like a concert, but the themes of the songs, if not necessarily the specific lyrics, do still kind of represent what the characters are thinking. It's like a very mm -hmm. vague connection. This is my Korea. They talk about, oh, this is my story. It's my turn to be in the spotlight. We're like here to show people like a whole different side of music. But as an opener, it was just not as explosive as I wanted it to be. Um, and then next we have up bow down which is luna's first song i was like not that stoked about the song i was kind of happy when she had a panic attack and ran off stage <laughs> yeah. she has a panic attack because ruby actually walks in also for context this is done in the circle in the square on broadway which is technically an in the round stage but most often it's configured as a thrust stage so you have audience like in this long oblong shape on three sides and Ruby sort of walks down through the audience. And when Mui sees her, she freezes and then runs off. I respected Ruby as a character, I think, even if she's like not supposed to be a good person necessarily. This is my Korea and Updoria are both not amazing songs, but it does effectively set the scene for you, even if you hardly understand a word they say, because there are like certain English lines and obviously this is my Korea. It's just this is my Korea, which just makes sense as like, okay, these are K-pop stars that are debuting, you know, for the very first time in America. Fate and Artemis does that. And then like the stage clears for Mui. Updoria translates to bow down and it's a very I'm the big man in the house kind of song mm -hmm. after her like younger siblings perform. Yeah. And I, I think the chorus ends with like, are you ready for me? It definitely sets the scene that she's the headliner. She's way more famous than the rest of them. Everyone's here to see her. Mm -hmm. So they were like effective intro numbers for the entire cast, basically. Yeah. The songwriters are Helen Park and Max Vernon. I think they were really smart in where to put the English lyrics and how much of the English lyrics to put. But I think they put just enough English lyrics so you could get the gist of the song and understand what the song was about, even if you don't understand like 50% of the song. So I think that was also a smart move that they like probably thought out yeah. a lot. I mean, it's such a big undertaking. Like when was the last time a show was on Broadway and 80% of it wasn't even in, in <laughs> yeah. English? Pretty cool. So you better come thank you, lucky stars, to match your feet,
So from there, we move into the fate intro, um, which is that fight where they introduce themselves and Harry, the director, doesn't like it. Brad is like, I agree. We should introduce ourselves with individuality. I don't even remember what he does, but I'm pretty sure he gets down on one knee. and He like gets down on one knee. The camera comes close to him. He's like, hey. I'm Brad. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, like that. Like a little seductive, but he's trying too hard to be seductive. So you're just like, man, this kid does not get it. He's right. like, I was born in Illinois or wherever the fuck he was born. And New Jersey, probably. <laughs> yeah. Knowing Brad. It's just not impressive because he's really not doing anything that actually shows individuality. It's just like he doesn't want to be K-pop and he'd rather be Backstreet Boys. Yeah. Like immediately, we are not on Brad's side. As like Asian Americans, we still do not identify with Brad. I do actually actively like this song. This song is um, Hanguk Nom, which translates to Korean man. But I don't think I liked it as much the first time I heard it, but I definitely do like it a lot now. I think it's catchy. I think if you listen to the lyrics, kind of funny because it's talking about them being like a bad boy and stuff. But then oh my God. in the chorus, it's like, you made me so mad. I almost cried, but I'm Korean. So I keep it inside. And I'm like, okay, then. Oh, this is a song that's like, I'm good at being a bad, bad boy. Yeah, that one. Oh, that was so cringe. <laughs> Doesn't Brad say that too? Yeah. Brad gets the lines that are like, I'm a bad boy. Not a bad boy. A bad, bad boy. <laughs> like when there's two bads, it sounds more like you're talking about a puppy than a hot guy. <laughs> they needed one more syllable. They filled it with the wrong word. <laughs> listen it's it's the man's man man of k-pop <laughs> it really is so plot wise kevin Wu from uk so we i literally don't know what character he plays but he's like the leader of fate and like in k-pop there's usually like a group leader i love kevin he was once upon a time really famous he has that fight with brad obviously over the intros and they're kind of like petty bitches about it. The rest of Fate sides with Kevin. And then during the rehearsal for Korean Man, they like change up the choreography, be like an old choreography from before Brad that Brad doesn't know about. And he just like looks like an idiot in front of Harry during the rehearsal. Well, no, it wasn't even the rehearsal. It was the actual tape because later oh. Brad goes to ask Harry if he can, if they can retape it. So that's even worse. Honestly, Seven seems like I guess I guess fate is in the name, so they can't do seven. I was gonna be like, seven is a sizable band. I don't even know why you need a replacement. Well, like, isn't there one that's seventeen? You know, so they're just like throwing spaghetti at the wall. Here's thirteen hot guys. We hope somebody will pick one <laughs> to have an unhealthy obsession with, and then we will make all of our money off of them. And we get our first flashback. Ruby basically tells Harry, like, hey, while I'm dealing with Mui, I'll, I'll get her figured out. You film what you need from the other two groups. They have this whole, like, sort of offstage scene in Mui's dressing room. 
there's a lot of screens around the stage. There's a big projection on the back wall, but there's also screens above your head. And it projects like the different camera views of what's happening and you get this fight in the dressing room. But then we go into our first flashback scene, which is Mui as a nine-year-old auditioning for Ruby, which I swear I thought this was a different actor completely. I was looking through the program at intermission being like, oh, who was young Mui? And it was still Luna. They just put her in pigtails and she looked like she was legitimately like 10. Luna, great at playing young. I mean, honestly, I feel like all K-pop women are. She's actually 29. Oh, she's not that old. Too old for K-pop, K-pop though. Yeah. Apparently. <laughs> Uh, so this is ruby is just starting out her new label so she's auditioning artists to represent ruby is like hot off her like own less than satisfactory career she was also a performer and i think she was like okay like i think her songs got out there but she didn't quite like make the splash that she wanted to and i think like maybe she tried to break into the u.s market and it didn't work out for her so she starts her label and then we at this point is auditioning for her as a nine-year-old. Yeah. And you can tell Ruby's just not that impressed by Mui because they do the dance audition first and she's like, no, no, that's like, you're not good enough. And Mui is just like, no, but I can sing. And as Ruby's walking out, Mui starts to sing a song called Still I Love You. And Ruby, like, at first is, like, a little bit pissed because that was Ruby's song. But she was like, you know what? Like, I see you have the same sort of drive and fire that I did. I'll take you under my wing. You know, you have to be willing to work. So she basically signs Deal with the Devil at nine years old. And at this point, like, Ruby just doesn't seem that evil yet. That is true. Yeah. But we'll see. <laughs> Back on the main stage, we get a closer look at Artemis now. The notable names in Artemis are Min from Miss A and Bohyung from Spica. In Artemis, the two actual K-pop idols don't really do a ton in terms of like speaking lines and acting and stuff. Min is definitely very, she's like the cool girl in the group, I feel. She also just kind of sits there and acts cool. Remember when I was trying to pin them each to a Spice Girl? <laughs> yeah. Because they each have like a very defined characteristic. The song came from Ping Pong, was the original song, which is on Helen Park's SoundCloud, and I've listened to it. And it's, like, fun enough, but I... The other songs that were, like, changed, like, Korean Man came from Se Nam Ja, and that, I was like, okay, this sounds familiar. But Ping Pong, mm-hmm. I was like, this rings no bells. I listened to this on the SoundCloud today, and I still barely remember what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. But the next one I actually really like. I do too. Um so Wind Up Doll is we're back with Mui again. And this is another flashback. I think she's supposed to be like 13. She has made her debut now, I believe. But she's like tr- rehearsing 
very hard for it. And, you know, we found from the first flashback that she's a good singer. She's not a good dancer. But in K-pop, you have to kind of be a jack of all trades. So she is practicing really hard for Wind Up Doll. It just seems like Ruby has been making her dance like a drill sergeant for like the last seven hours. And she's like, literally a 13 year old about to collapse and on top of that we find out that her mom also just abandoned her so she's basically officially adopted by ruby now and has no other options um in the scene in the show she dances to the chorus over and over and over and for that reason like this chorus is stuck in my head so (laughs) hard even though the rest of the song wasn't but like the rest of the song is good actually like the rest of the song but like the chorus is just drilled into me um and then ruby's kind of just like you really have to want it several threats and inspirational speeches later we just gets her ass up and is like i have no mom i have no dad i'm gonna do this and then she does a perfect dance you do kind of see ruby i guess like being a little mean i mean she again never really gets that bad the entire show but you definitely see her pushing it i mean there's also like this choreographer dance teacher person who definitely is trying to push her harder and ruby is the one that's like okay like why don't we take a break and then that's when she asks me what is going on and so you do kind of see her like be compassionate a little but i thought it was also interesting because i felt like you couldn't tell if she was being truly compassionate or just fake compassionate and i thought that was like a nice like ambiguity to have i also really like the song i mean again it's another song where it sort of describes her situation i do think it's really catchy i think this is probably my second favorite song of the show the pre-chorus actually really stuck out to me upon re-listen some lines i jotted down were so what if i'm no longer happy anything you want just wind me up and then i'll do it gladly i'll never roll my eyes when you're near anytime i want to cry switch gears and it's kind of the first song that does this but i feel like it carries throughout Mui's songs actually where like the title is kind of sexual like the idea Mm -hmm. of like you know a wind-up doll and like you can do whatever you want with me and like I'll just do it is the concept and the title feels very sexual but then like when you dig into the lyrics it's like not really sexual and just more about like her actual situation Mm -hmm. and the neglect and abuse that she's dealing with as a child and like it's not really this like romantic sexual way at all and i feel like that carries out through a couple of her songs where it like sounds like a sexy song but it's not Mm -hmm. i think like i agree in a slightly different way where i i was thinking about especially for mute bird which we'll get to later and it also works for wind up doll where if you heard it on like pop radio or something it does feel like it could definitely be about like a romantic relationship but when Mm -hmm. you put it into the context of her and ruby you could also see how it's definitely about her relationship with ruby which is you know not romantic in any regard yeah i love the choreography for this show and obviously for k-pop you know you have to have good choreography which is by jennifer weber who also did and juliet which i didn't realize until like way after i watched and juliet But so much of these songs, I feel like when I hear the songs, I can sort of like see the choreography that fits the songs and what they did. And I feel like that just speaks to like a really good synchronization between what the choreo is and what the songs are. Like that just really stands out in my mind. And I was talking to Lily about this also because, you know, she sees a lot of dance stuff. I was like, Broadway's not as precise, but 
seeing how in sync these groups are in K-pop, we could be expecting more, I guess. A lot of this music is electronic, and I'm sure a lot of it is pre-tracked and stuff. I'm wondering if that actually makes it easier for the choreography to be more synchronized because then you kind of know the exact tempo that it's going to be every night as opposed to when you have a live orchestra and Mm -hmm. you might have different conductors on a different night or something like that. Then maybe it's a little more um, variable. So there's just something like so deeply satisfying about such good synchronization. (laughs) Like when you're watching it, it just gives it this like really awesome concert vibe. It energizes me. Yeah. When the plot doesn't, you're just waiting there for the choreo and you're like, oh my God. Basically, every time a song started, I'm like, thank God. <laughs> yes. I only live to make you happy. Anything you want, just wind me up and then I'll do it gladly for you. Uh-oh. I only come to life when you're near. When looking to your eyes, sends my gear. Spinning in a circle like a cuckoo. After Wind Up Doll, we have Halfway, which is a Brad solo. Well, so this is the part where Brad goes back to Harry and he's like, can we retape that song because I look like a dumbass? And (laughs) Harry is like, so tell me about your life. What does it feel like to be part of this K-pop group? And then you find out Brad's new. They have like another member who maybe got kicked out for some unknown reason. And so the the rest of the team hasn't really warm to him yet and also because he keeps trying to speak english because he doesn't know korean at all which i'm like brad you're part of a k-pop group it might help you but anyway (laughs) brad is like oh well you know i also kind of write my own songs and he's like i wrote this song called halfway which is about being half korean and half american and then he sings a song that is not about race at all and it's basically a romantic song is, is he asking the rest of fate to meet him halfway? Yeah, I don't know. I guess, first of all, the fact that Harry didn't know that the dance was off in Korean Man <laughs> is just like testament to what a bad choice of a director he is mm-hmm. for this entire production. I asked you earlier today if all I want to do on Helen Park's SoundCloud was rewritten into Halfway because there's like a line in there. And granted, I don't know what the entire song is about, but there's this one line that's like, I'm half yellow, half white, and I like didn't know where I belonged until I saw Michael Jackson. And I was like, (laughs) I am barely following this train of thought. Also, Brad in the off-Broadway version, first of all, his name was Epic, which just automatically makes him like twice as douchey. But... Instead of doing this whole halfway thing, I think halfway is a new song for this version. His sort of side plot is that, like, I guess Fate would go in individually to record their tracks or, like, record their portions, maybe. But he recorded his in English after everyone else recorded theirs in Korean. And he was the one that was like, well, we're, like, going to be in America. Like, we should be doing things, like, the American way. And then, you know, like, kind of the same struggle plays out, I guess. But it sounded like he was a lot more douchey about it he also doesn't seem that apologetic to like not have very good korean and stuff he's just 
he's just kind of like, they're bullying me because like I'm American and my Korean's not that good. And I'm like, yes, maybe you should speak Korean. Brad's that like entitled millennial stereotype that everybody hates. Yeah. Um, Cause also like the trainee process is like really brutal. Mm-hmm. And for most people, that's the only way to debut. And some people have trained like up to a decade or more before performing like before debuting and then it it seems like that might have been the case for some or most members of fate and then brad kind of just like came out of nowhere so they're also just like it's not just like he doesn't fit in but they're also like this isn't fair i feel like for people that don't know about the process of becoming a k-pop star like that just doesn't make that much sense I, i feel like in America, like there is the concept of paying your dues, but for pop singers, a lot of it just happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like that's what Brad is expecting for himself. Yeah. Like you just get a lucky break, and once you make it, then you're there. Yeah. And then we got Superstar. So this is after after Mui debuts, but she's still not doing as good as she thought she'd be doing. Like, she has fans, but she's not, like, a big star. Mui is 18 now. So she's been doing this for nine years. She's like, Ruby, I've been training nine years, but I'm nowhere as big as you said I would be. Like, why hasn't that happened? And also, this is when Ruby has started recruiting other people to, like, expand her label, which I think is a fair thing to do. But Mui's like, I never see you anymore. You never hang out with me. Like, you're trying to replace me. She gets a little paranoid, I guess. It's because Ruby's basically her mom. Yeah. Ruby is like, oh, well, like, you're just not giving it your all. That's why the fans can tell when you're not giving them like your authentic self which is also a lot of bullshit because her quote-unquote authentic (laughs) self is fake and then some we goes out and sings superstar so this song is the act one finale yeah i don't think this song is like necessarily a top song but i think the performance of it is great just all the scenic elements that go together for this um the choreography for this is a full dance break in the middle the people who are in fate and Artemis do come out as backup dancers for Mui in this song. And um, mm. this is their like monks outfit vest mm-hmm, thing. Mm-hmm. Like a full body yellow. Yeah. And Mui is just uh, like Mui's in outfit blue. Was good. Yeah. She's in it blue. Was, she like, has like an Elsa braid. Cocktail dress slash dance outfit. We found it super unnerving the whole time that these other like A-list K-pop stars were just casually backup <laughs> dancing. <laughs> on broadway but then again you were like kevin's just excited to not be selling blood <laughs> right. which, fair statement kevin looked so happy to be there i really think like i even thought this when i was a fan of his and you kiss that like he just loves performing at heart mm-hmm. you know yeah. and he truly looks ecstatic <laughs> i get to dance for two hours every night for my job and he's just like so happy with himself he just fits the character that he's playing so well of this like hardworking, not complaining, old school, put in the effort K-pop star. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that's the act one finale. You're like, okay, Mui is going to make it as a superstar. But you're also like, what happens? Because at this point, she still looks up to Ruby as a maternal figure. Right. But then at the start of the show, which is like in the present, she like sees Ruby and flees the country so (laughs) i feel like i'm in intermission being like what the fuck happened between them
Start Act Two with an Artemis song called yeah. Waste of Time. Well, the intro to the song was also super funny because there's like this montage video of it looked like they were all breaking up with their boyfriends because they're like, oh, I'm sorry, I just don't have enough time for you. Like, I need to get rid of you. But then you like go to the next scene and some of them are just like saying bye to like a stuffed animal or something. I think one girl's like literally stabbing her teddy bear. And then we catch up with Mui again. The plot kind of sick thickens. This is the first time that we're like formally introduced to her boyfriend. He is like, I don't know, like an elementary school music teacher or something. Yeah. Like he's also musically talented, but he wants a quiet life. Like he he likes Mui. He does not like her life. And basically, Mui has written this song called Bungarise. He is, I think, like too naive to a point, like, because he is like actually full Korean, like lives in Korea, not a Brad, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and he just like seems to not really understand the industry still. And he's just like, yeah, you wrote this song. We, it's a great song. You should get Ruby to record it and like make it your thing. But this song, which translates to Mute Bird, is like a really pretty ballad mm-hmm. um, and not at all like any of her other songs. Like all of her other songs, you know, she's in these big, colorful outfits, like dancing, performing, belting. And this song is like a very, very mellow ballad. And I think like Mui knows that Ruby's not really going to be into it. But Mm -hmm. Junie, who's the boyfriend, is just like encouraging her. And I feel like he and Ruby are like the devil and the angel on her shoulder, but it's not clear who's who. Um, Because they're both kind of just like trying to influence Mui for their own purposes. And like Junie basically wants her to like quit the industry he's like you're talented you could be a singer songwriter you could live the quiet life with me as a music teacher and ruby's just very like that's not what you want you worked so hard for like where you are today don't be a fucking singer songwriter those people are losers (laughs) um but anyways that's like the scene that kind of surrounds this but i actually really like the song when she sings it Mm-hmm. Um, it reminds me a lot of Greenfinch and Linnet Bird. Oh, that's not where I thought you were going. <laughs> where did you think I was going? I thought you were going some like other po- power ballad or something. Oh, no, it's just like the concept. Yeah. Basically, the message of this song, like she is in captivity by like her life by Ruby and her boyfriend. And she feels like she doesn't mm. have a voice. And this is another song where it's like, it sounds romantic, but it's not really. Yeah. 
I thought the, the, point the, of the smartest lyric for this in terms of that was there's one that was like saw other girls on the side, which, you know, if she's talking to a boyfriend, that would be really like, you know, big betrayal to her for if he's was seeing other girls. But then for Ruby, if she's like, you know, trying to replace Mui and she's seeing other girls like it also works. And I thought that was really smart. This is by far the most coherent chorus in the entire <laughs> yeah. show. The entire chorus is in English and the entire chorus scans well. Um, so I wrote all of it down um up until the you saw other girls on the side part but like the first half of the chorus is i gave you my all you made me feel small got off from watching me fall and my favorite is you said without you i'd drown but you're the one who held me down mm-hmm. which i feel like is a very direct stab at ruby <laughs> yeah well when i went and saw it a second time they definitely made him more of an asshole um oh. which was interesting you know, he seems like a nice guy. He's just like, listen, like you've dedicated your life to this and like Ruby has basically groomed you and is this what you really want? Like you could always come home with me. So afterwards, like when Ruby comes, she's just like, is this what you want? You want to throw away everything you've worked for for this stupid music teacher? Oh, and then they get engaged. Oh my God, I completely forgot. She proposes to him. Yeah. So it seems like she's kind of using him as an escape route, but she's also like, oh, you could come on tour with me and we could do this. And he's like, no, that's not what I want to do. I thought we were going to do a quiet life. But then in the updated version, like the second time I saw it, he basically gives her an ultimatum. He's like, you either have to come with me or else we're like never seeing each other again. But like he sounds more mean about it because like realistically, that is probably pretty true. The way he said it was just like a he definitely didn't understand her at all and didn't understand why that would be a tough decision for her. They made it more clear that Mui really does love performing. She just doesn't love being controlled as much as he has been. So I think they tried to like rework that scene so that Mui is trying to find a middle ground between being able to be this like K-pop idol and being able to perform and have all the fans, but also still being able to have self-expression and to write her own songs and do stuff that's outside of just what the image that's been cultivated for her is. So, so I yeah. think I like the idea of like she truly likes to perform. She doesn't like to be controlled. But I thought that even when we saw it, which was in previews, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that like I kind of wish Junie was a little bit better still because <laughs> yeah. like I don't think he was that evil when we saw it in no. in previews. Um, but he was he was kind of like a very like idealistic music for music's sake kind of music Mm -hmm. teacher (laughs) i don't know and like ruby is like smart and she's like empathetic but also conniving and she just like knows how to turn we against juni Mm -hmm. is like how i kind of felt about it and i feel like that kind of pushed juni to his limit and he's kind of like you know i don't want to deal with this right and I feel like it was this message that was just like age old, like you have to choose between your career or like this relationship kind of thing. And I was like, that kind of sucks. Like he is dating supposedly one of the biggest K-pop stars ever. Like I feel like he should have figured this out earlier. She should have also probably figured it out earlier, like ask the right questions before you start dating someone. And also when she like proposed to him, it was like, I don't know if you know what you're getting into. But yeah. Yeah. So I actually wanted him to be better. And I'm kind of sad that he became worse. But I guess there wasn't a ton of conflict in the show. So maybe they just needed (laughs) that. I like the song, though. This is probably like second or third for me. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. 
we move on to the next song, which is America, which you said you really liked. This is another fate song. I think this also just has to do with staging, but I actually do think that I really like this song, mostly the chorus. And this is when they finally hash stuff out with Brad. And I don't remember how this conversation started. Harry is obsessed with Brad at this point because Brad is the only person giving him anything. Artemis is like, we can't dish out tea. The rest of fate is like very rigid. They're like, we're going to stick with how we do things. We're going to dance synchronized. We're going to sing synchronized. We're going to act synchronized. And so like, I feel like Harry as the white person doesn't like, he might be a good director in the Hollywood sense, but like he doesn't really know what to do with the people that he's working with right now. Like he can't connect with them. Um, So he's struggling. And so he basically starts making Brad like his headliner. Mm -hmm. And then this is when Kevin Wu like gets so pissed off. He basically is just like, stop the song. I'm not fucking doing this. (laughs) What a dramatic little bitch. Yeah. And then they like fight it out. You know, Kevin's like, you haven't earned your place. Brad's like, I'm just as talented as you are. Kevin's like, you barely speak Korean. And then this is when like half of his band betrays him and is like, well, you know, I'm from Queens, so I don't speak that much (laughs) Korean either, to be honest, Kevin. And Kevin's like, what the fuck? You're from Queens. Um, So anyways, they kind of like bond over that. And then one one guy just like looks at Kevin Wu. He's like, you need to chill the fuck out. And then he looks at Brad and he's like, you need to learn some fucking Korean. And then they're all friends after that. (laughs) So they're basically like, we cannot let this tall weirdo Harry get between us. Um, Oh yeah, that's true. They were like, why are we fighting each other when we should be fighting Harry? And Harry, they all give Harry the stink eye like at once. It's like okay. (laughs) And then they do America. I think it has like a really cool beat to it. And they do say like, this is our America, which I thought was like kind of interesting and i'm not sure if it was meant to be a callback to this is my korea but would be cool next scene is when harry gets like kicked the fuck out right but what is he yeah so oh, he sneaks the dressing room we again. see okay. the camera operator right they see this cameraman that's like filming their conversation about mui's whole fucking life and because oh, mui's like, like having oh, a breakdown Harry's about no whether good. or not she's gonna go on to do the concert she's still having her like do i leave with my boyfriend and I think, like, she slowly realizes that, like, she has all the power here because (laughs) Ruby did put so much into her that she is, like, the way that this label makes money, you know? Mm -hmm. The American debut would be canceled and the concert would be canceled and everything because, like, she is the main box office driver. She realizes she's in control. So Ruby is kind of, like, trying every tactic. She's, like, threatening, apologizing, empathizing, like, inspiring. Like, she's mm-hmm. throwing out every speech that there is out there, I feel like. Junie just behaves in a way where 
we is kind of like you know what i thought that you were like the one person that understood me but i don't think you do it kind of seems like she's probably going to stay on her current career track but it's not like entirely clear it also because she kind of comes to this deal with ruby where she's like i will definitely go on tonight but i don't know about tomorrow mm-hmm. like she's definitely going to perform in this thing that like the entire show is leading up to but she's like she's not making any promises yeah, like she might become a singer-songwriter after this yeah. um, instead of being like a big K-pop star. Like I feel like she's not staying with Junie. Um, she's going to continue on muse- with music, but not necessarily with Ruby is like yeah. where we end. And then she goes on for the concert and each of the bands perform a couple songs, two songs yeah. each. Well, so the first time we saw it, she goes on directly after the scene. But uh, later on, they switch it. So she goes on at the end, like after the other two bands, which I do think makes a lot more sense since she's like the headliner. We get this big intro board where it's like, like location, circle in the square theater, New York City, time now or whatever. So it's like, okay, we're like really getting meta here. Then you see Artemis come on. Their first song is Super Goddess. But the next song is what I think is the best song of the show, which is Gin and Tonic. I think I might actually like wind up doll more, but I love so much of this song. It's basically like an Usher song sung by girls. They're just (laughs) like the week has been so busy. I'm ready to hit the clubs. My idiot friend is trying to set me up with a man and I'm just trying to slam drinks. And I love that for them. Yeah. It's like a fun party song. Every line makes sense. The dance is kind of cute. They do like a little finger dance while they list off all of the basic (laughs) cocktails they can think of. But somewhere where they're listing drinks, they just kind of lose me. (laughs) You're like, these drinks are too basic for me. I need them to be a little more sophisticated. (laughs) I liked when they were saying actual things. (laughs) and not so much when they started listing drinks you know that's fair because if that's what you like the wind up doll definitely does more of that yeah but it was fun by far the best um artemis song and i think like the reason why it stands out so much because like even after the show it was probably like the only song that i remembered a lot of Mm -hmm. is like i think it's the best song in this concert section of the show like mm, this finale yeah. concert and then fate comes on after in their all white outfits so the stage is a little bit two-tiered where there's like the main stage which is where all those like video boards exist that i was talking about but then there's also like a slightly upper level of the stage where they have parts that can like extend into the catwalk of the main stage fate comes and they just sit on that upper part of the stage it is extended so they're like pretty close to the audience and they just sing this like very like ballady song called meant to be and i was like okay that's kind of sweet like and then they go to like we're meant to be it was fate and then they do their like hand symbol thing for their fan name and i was like oh that's what this song is so and like the second time i saw it they definitely had like repeat fans like people brought light sticks to this thing and stuff Um, and then we move on to a second fate song, which is Hundara. I I liked it. It actually has one of my favorite couplets in the in the show. Cause the song, despite the fact that it's named Shake It, is a song about like they have to play hard to get to get this girl to <laughs> yeah. like them. Um, and one of my favorite couplets is you only seem to like me when I show you the doorway, so I stay frigid like a fjord in Norway. <laughs> 
pretty good. And I, I was just like, that's not bad. I kind of like that. I don't also, know. like the original name was K-Popsicle, which I also thought was really funny. I think that makes more sense. <laughs> yeah. I just wasn't expecting that level of English, you know? <laughs> Looks are on fleek, you make me go weak, you're a teenage dream I don't pay no attention cause I know all the tension is a part of my scheme My indifference will break your defense and you're gonna scream But take a look at me, I guarantee it's gonna make you melt like eyes I, 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 I read your text but I never call And it burns inside like a fireball I keep on ghosting because it's true that you're hot Popsicle. Actually, I think it's kind of like cool that the songwriters had like so much range to write both the big super electric numbers mm-hmm. like Bow Down as well as like the songs like Mute Bird. Right. Because like in the show, it's supposed to be like these are songs for very different people, you know, like one is Mui's like projected character and then like one mm-hmm. is who she really is. It's cool that like the same people wrote all of these and for three different bands and all their personalities. Yeah. And I mean, we were having a conversation about like orchestrators earlier this week when you were like, wait, so what does the composer even do? <laughs> and um, right. and Helen Park actually did all the music production on this. Like she orchestrated it. She did like, the, like she's credited with the music production and i thought that was actually like really impressive because this is all like electronic stuff and that i feel like is just very different from what is classically taught in general like broadway orchestration or just orchestration overall so i was pretty impressed by that and she was like self-taught or something too phoenix is i think it's a solid song i would put it about on the same level as waste of time um, but I mean, it is also like it comments a lot on Wee's situation because she's just like, like a phoenix, I rise above and all that. They they did release like a, a little excerpt of it online with Luna singing it. And she has this really great vocal riff that I think was just so, so good to like see live also because she is just such a good singer. But so then we end with like a full um, ensemble finale, which is Blast Off. It's fun. When I first heard it, it reminded me a lot of the Kinky Boots song. Um, shit, what's oh. it called? The last song in there. Oh, God. <laughs> Raise you up. Yeah, it reminded me of that. <laughs> <laughs> and on Helen Park SoundCloud, you can hear an excerpt of what the original version was. The off-Broadway version was done in 2017. Which is like, if you think back, that was when Trump was like getting into fights with North Korea and stuff. So they do actually intersperse it with like a few, um, I guess, like news clips about the rockets in North Korea, which is an interesting choice. Mm. I don't know if they actually did that in the show. Another part about the off-Broadway show was like when they get when fate gets into that fight um, before America in the off-Broadway show, because you were in the same room as them, like... The Kevin Wu character, who he was not in the show back then, literally like drew a line down the middle of the room and he's like, you got to pick sides now. And he like actually made the audience also pick sides. And he was like talking to um, Brad, a.k.a. Epic. um, And he's like, you've divided this band just like our country has been divided by Americans or whatever. And I was like, all right. (laughs) 
saw it during the two weeks that it opened? Yeah. Damn. It played for 17 regular performances, which is one more performance than Merrily We Rode Along played for. I mean, I think the hot take is Bad Cinderella probably had a better plot just because, you know, we talked about all the like good things that they almost did. (laughs) (laughs) And, And this one doesn't really have any of that. But the technical elements of like the staging and the dancing and the singing like was on point in this show in a way that it wasn't quite necessarily consistently there in Bad Cinderella. Are these K-pop stars coming to the Tony Awards even? I mean, I do think they could get nominated for a lot of technical elements like set, maybe costumes, but choreography for sure. Maybe sound design, orchestrations, possibly. I still think it has a decent shot at score, but it really depends how much the Tony nominators hate having a score that's like half in Korean. I think that could be difficult. And I honestly, like, I think there's a couple of standouts, but I really don't know if like the full score is good enough to like overcome the fact that so much of it is Korean. Mm, Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, What do you think about Mui for actress early on i would have said she had a pretty good shot but now there's just too many people victoria clark from kimberly akimbo we have annalee ashford for sweeney todd we have michaela diamond for parade oh and juliet i think is also on the brink but i feel like she might get a nomination before luna does just in terms of you saying how like this show is having an identity crisis i feel like that's such a good note to end on (laughs) because (laughs) It is kind of like sad, like bittersweet that this show didn't do really well, likely like won't make much of an appearance at the Tonys. Like it would have been so cool if like someone in the cast or production team won something and got to talk about this production Mm -hmm. because it is non-traditional in terms of Broadway shows and the work they put into getting it on Broadway seems like it would be a really interesting story. But I feel like the identity crisis here is like where they fucked up because it just really seems like we don't know who this show is for. Right. It's like, is it for K-pop fans? Is it for Broadway people? Is it an expose? Is it not? Like, does it hate the white people? Does it not hate <laughs> the white people? Like, it's just so confusing. And I feel like that's kind of why it didn't really mm-hmm. succeed. Like, they were sort of wishy-washy with every statement they were making. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully it will do better in the future. Um, it also did seem like they didn't market it as well, because a lot of people who I think were fans of the K-pop people in the show didn't even know that it was happening and i guess also like when you have a show called k-pop a lot of people just automatically wouldn't go so maybe they'll figure out how to do that better in the future if it does come back so that is our episode on k-pop let us know what you think and if you want to follow us you can find us on any podcast platform under bottomless broadway and you can also follow us on social media at Twitter and Instagram on Bottomless B-Way or email us at bottomlessbway at gmail.com. And otherwise, we will be back in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs>